I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Tell Me The Score. Today I'm joined by John Powell, one of Britain's most gifted and respected film composers. Now living in L.A., John's worked on a huge range of films from the Born Identity series right through to Kung Fu Panda, How to Train Your Dragon and United 93, collaborating with some of the great names in modern cinema. We talk about how it all started, his childhood, right through to working with Hans Zimmer and later with John Williams on the Star Wars franchise. John's really frank and honest and it's a wonderful window into the life of a modern film composer. I began by asking John about his childhood and where his love of music began. Well, my, my father was a musician. He was with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. He was the tuba player um, at the time of Beecham. He was an older father. So wow. uh, he'd been in the um, the army. He was the tuba player. He, he learned tuba at Nella Hall, which is the military um, sort of music academy. And it's actually very good. And a lot of great brass players <laughs> famously came out of there. Yeah. Um, and so he'd been in the industry, as it were. And uh, he was kind of semi-retired when I by the time I actually really got into music, but about seven, seven years old, I went, you know, I, I fiddled around with different instruments, you know, played a bit of trombone as a really small kid, a tiny little sopranino trombone. And um, that was Evan Watkins, who was the first trombonist of the, uh, of the Royal Philharmonic. I remember him bringing that, his little sopranino around, see if I could play it. <laughs> I, re I really enjoyed it, but I was probably about five at the time, six. And we had a piano, so I would play, on, play around on the piano. But uh, age seven, seven and a half maybe, I went down to a rehearsal in Brighton. My father was doing a rehearsal down there and uh, on a Sunday morning, and it was the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I mean... You you tell these stories, and I, I think every time I tell it, I kind of in, I sort of elaborate, <laughs> the, you know, and it becomes kind of um, apocryphal. Um, it was probably just the first piece of music that I could sort of really get my head around, and and was incredibly catchy but moving moving at the same time. Um, so I, I think that really spurred me on, and I I remember sitting quietly in the car as we came home and. My father saying, "What's up?" You know, I said, uh, "Do you think I could learn the violin?" He said, "Yeah, I suppose so." So, um, so I was put into Mrs. Lucas's violin class, um, and and I think pretty quickly she said, "Oh, John's quite good, so l let me do some solo lessons with him." And then uh, I got a, a proper violin, fairly decent one, from Eddie Moore's Music in Boscombe, which is where we used to go on holiday, um, and then. Um, and then I started really playing it, and uh, and then the East Sussex Youth Orchestra started, and um, that's where I met, met Emlyn at the back of the seconds. In we were thirteen, I think, uh, and we were playing. Um, it was the Firebird, and that just blew the top of my head off. But you know, in 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 trying to play the violin, I kind of. I had wonderful experiences, you know, absolutely wonderful experiences. I really started to, you know, realize that music was 
this language that I could I could understand and made so much more sense to me than English. Um, and it allowed me to, uh, you know, express yourself. I mean, it's, it's the cliche. You're trying to express yourself, whatever that means. I, I, I think that when you're seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, the, the world is still kind of just sort of forming in front of you. Um, your relationships with your parents, your relationships with the world. Um, this is all pre pre girls as it were. So, you know, you, there's a kind of a purity about what you're looking for in your own figuring out your own existence. And I probably would have stumbled over words so much that I would have found them irritating. And then, you know, along comes a piece of, you know, pieces of music and you can listen to them and, and they, they make so much more sense than anything else anybody has ever said. Um, and then you try and play them. And even if it's not, you know, it's not kind of completely there, especially if we, and it, obviously only really when you play with other people, that's when it really makes sense on a violin because a violin's hard to make kind of sense of on its own. A piano, at least, you've got a bit more chance of sort of pick, the whole picture is a little bit more there. But, you know, going down to play in orchestras, you know, that was the real thing. So when when you're sitting there, I think the first orchestra serious thing I ever played was Egmont right. down in Lewis. This was pre the East Sussex Youth Orchestra by a couple of years. So maybe I was 10. Uh, 11 and um, it was just this kind of hall, small hall <laughs> and uh, a bunch of kids playing and it and uh, it was just you know sort of extraordinarily powerful and I remember thinking that the the way we're all sitting in a room all sort of emotionally facing in the same direction and and all speaking the same language and it all fit together and and it was a, a story that was beyond kind of any kind of description, uh, visual or otherwise that I knew before. I was just sort of led away really with it. And, and also I was, I was shit at everything else. So <laughs> it became this kind of question of, well, I like music and music. I'd just do music if I could, I, I'd prefer not to do anything else. So hence I'll try and do as much as I can. And, you know, at school I was kind of very, into every kind of music. I, I started to sort of play uh, with friends, you know, and we would play, you know, sort of, uh, I started to play a bit of guitar and piano and, and actually, you know, electric guitar. I remember really getting into li Thin Lizzy. Yeah. Uh, trying to sort of play um, Gary Moore solos. And, <laughs> um, you know, and, and and so it just kind of rolls on and, and you just, you know, up till then, I'd really only listened to classical music and then the world, a load of other music suddenly comes into your head, everything from, um, you know, I remember Because the Night, um, right. which is a, a Bruce Springsteen song, um, or Man with a Child in His Eyes by Kate Bush. And I remember thinking, this is doing the same thing to me as, you know, Brahms, what's going on here? I don't understand. Because there was a lot of pop music I was listening to going, this is shit, I don't want anything to do with this. And then a few things come along and they just, they touch you the same way. And it's like, ah, this is a much more universal language. And I realized it's not about classical music. And then Pete Gabriel and, you know, um, and Queen. I was listening to a lot of Queen as well, you know. Um, and it was all sort of saying the same stuff. And and uh, I just thought, I've got to pursue this. This is the only thing I really want to do.
And, and so how do you get then from that sort of mix of things into thinking, oh, I, re I really want to go to Trinity and working really hard to get in? And how does it, how does it, how does it end up focusing into thinking, well, I've got to go to music college? And, and were your parents supportive in a way? Because as musicians, I think I'm, I'm terrified of my kids going anywhere near music because it's just... <laughs> <laughs> well, my father was sort of in semi-retirement and I remember him... Uh, Unfortunately, he was a big drinker as well. So he would come back from the pub and I would be practicing in the kitchen and he'd come in and listen to me and I was practicing a bar partita. Um, and one day I was probably 13, 14. And, uh, and I remember him listening to me and I stopped and, you know, finished. And, 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 he, and he looked at me, he said, You'll, you're going to make a good plumber. And, uh, and he kind of was right. The other things he said to me famously, at least I remember are, you know, rhythm, he was just all about rhythm. So the only times he would actually sort of help was like, you know, if I was playing and he, he would say things about, you know, just rhythm. He was a big, big room, big one on rhythm. Um, you know, it's hard for a tuba player to sort of make comments about, you know, tone or bow use or whatever, yeah. but uh, he certainly could say, you know, you have to, you have to keep better time than this, you know? Um, and, and then he also said, don't be a player. It's too hard. I think he, you know, he's at the end of his career, so he was exhausted by it. Um, the famous quote is: he came back from a from a concert one day and said, "Fuck Boulez and fuck Petrushka." There's a kind of a fairly high, I think, slightly tricky tuba bits in in Petrushka, and he must have been doing it with the orchestra with conducted by Boulez, and um, Boulez wouldn't let anybody in the orchestra fuck up, you know. So he was probably stressed by it, you know. Um, and then he kind of stopped doing that stuff and he, he retired and, and became the tuba player for the, the BBC concert orchestra right. for kind of the last part of his life. And, but then unfortunately, just as, as it was getting interesting for me and I was really getting into it, he died when I was 15. So we, we then moved to Bournemouth and I went to Bournemouth and Paul college of further education, uh, which had a, like a sixth form for those sixth form years, 16, 17. I went there uh, on the violin and they, you know, there was a specialist music course like Lewis had been, you know, but it was, so I, I you know, cause I was not that great a player. I, I never was. I mean, I, I remember when I was young, I, I went uh, for a, my father took me to the menu in school for, an, you know, to, to see, <laughs> to see. Um, and I think I must've been 10 or 11. And they said, well, we would have, we would let John in, but only if he was three or four. So, um, yeah. you know, and I, I remember I just, the same the same thing, being taken to school, and oh. and going, uh, and they wheel out like the six-year-old kids who then were all Russian, who'd <laughs> done nothing but played the violin, and were playing, you know, big cries to pieces, yeah. and I I think I could I think I could have got in. I just but the the atmosphere just there was something funny about it. I've got so many friends from the menu in school now, but I, I'm not sure that they. I think they, they value the fact that they can play wonderfully, but I'm not sure what else they necessarily get out of it. But the idea of it was just wonderful. I mean, yes. my mother would threaten me if I was ever, you know, misbehaving, which I didn't generally do, but the, the whole thing for me was I'd be sent away to school, you know, to, to go to a, an actual kind of a boarding school. And through all my childhood was just, that was a nightmare. That was an absolute nightmare. I think because I'd seen John, Tom Brown's school days, which had been made yeah. into a drama on, on the BBC and it was, was fucking horrifying. You know, this idea of being kind of bullied all the time. I hated it. So 
that was the threat. But I, even then, I remember, oh, if it was music, it never occurred to me that, you know, that sort of any kind of place where you were just doing music could in, incur the same kind of bullying and bullshit that you, that, you know, a lot of my friends have went through, you know, even though they love their schools or whatever, they still went through the shit that, you know, everyone goes, goes through at boarding school. I, I hated the idea of it, but I would have put up with it maybe for, you know, for, for music. Cause it, that was just a, so fascinating to me. I would have done anything to do nothing but music all the time. And I, you know, in, in Crobra, which is where I came from, they had a, a, a big kind of, comprehensive uh, but we had a wonderful sort of head of music there Derek Watmo thank god for the him i mean he was incredible really and uh, so there was a lot of music at, even even at that school and i managed to get out of everything at school to do i was in you know i basically played percussion for the you know one concert i i played in every, everything including the girls choir because i was playing percussion for that and then i played guitars in some other thing and then i played um violin in the orchestra and then i mean none of it was great but it was you know it was just at least i knew at christmas time i could generally get out of all the other classes to to do this which is which is why i'm barely literate um but i well so bournemouth was two years of so i i auditioned on the violin and he said you know the don 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 riddell was his name duncan riddell's father yes absolutely yes. Who yeah, so, it's the RPO, I should say. That's right. Yes, and and Duncan. Uh, so I, I then went there, and then they put me as a violin with uh, Nick Roth, who was a marvelous violin teacher, who happened to be living down there at the time, uh, and um, who very quickly realised I was not going to make it and passed me over to Duncan right. <laughs> on the violin um, and said, you're not serious. He said, he said, yeah, you're, you're not serious about this, are you? And he was right because he knew that I was kind of like, I, at that point, you know, age 16, you, you have to be doing four or five hours a day, you know, if you're heading for music college. And it just wasn't, I wasn't even, <laughs> I was hardly. So, um, so I then realized I, I'm never going to make it as a violinist what am I going to do so I was by that time I was really getting much more interesting composition so I said to Don Riddell I said I'd rather go up to one of the music colleges and try and do composition and he laughed laughed because there's very few places you know he said no 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 go violin see if we get it try and get into on violin and then and then you can change or something I said no I just don't want to do, I'm never going to put the energy in the effort I know I know what it, I think I know what it takes and I'm not willing to do it but I'll do anything else like that and so he kind of looked at me and with with its big bushy eyebrows and he said all right would you play the viola <laughs> <laughs> so and then so he handed me this viola. I said yep if you sign the thing that this form that I needed to to go up for the four colleges I was trying for Royal Royal College Academy Guildhall and Trinity and um if you sign it I'll play the viola as many times as you want so he handed me a viola and he said go down that hall there and and <laughs> it was the schubert octet and i still couldn't read uh, to this day i still don't read the clef i would just do a trick you know to pretend i was reading it in treble clef and do some some transitions uh, transposition i don't know even how i can do my my brain doesn't suggest that i could do that but i found that easier than actually learning the clef properly so i then just played from then on was i played viola it was much easier i could and I played in lots of different orchestras, played for things. And, you know, I, I kind of flubbed my way through it. 
and I found it to be actually the most interesting thing to play in the orchestra because you, you're not on the tune much. You, you know, spotlight isn't on you that much. You can sort of sit there and chug away, but you're, and you're right in the center of things. And if you, if you're not, you know, kind of under the conductor. So I found it the most useful place to learn orchestration actually sort of, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, so I managed to get up to Trinity. They were the only ones that would take me quite rightly. Um, the Royal College wouldn't. The, there was an entrance kind of exam for the Royal College, and I remember going to that. And we all sat down, and they gave out these you know, kind of entrance exams, I suppose. And uh, I looked at it, and it was kind of, you know, this Beethoven quartet. Here's the first four bars of a Beethoven quartet continue for the the next, you know, sort of 25 bars. So I, I said to the person who was adjudicating i said have you got any little rooms maybe with a piano and then i could really do this you know better and he said to me if you need a piano then this is not the right place for you so and he was right i mean you know i i did not have the sort of that kind of brain i definitely needed to work it out with something else <laughs> um and it, it you know i wouldn't be a composer if it wasn't for computers i mean i'm i just don't have the brain for it i don't have the playing ability um, but I somehow managed to get in at a time when computers could kind of catch it and catch it all for you. And then I could figure it out from there. Um, and so, uh, you know, Trinity was great because they, they let me in somehow or other. I had one piece of music that I could play on the piano as a sort of second subject. Um, uh, I didn't even sort of proffer the, the viola, you know, for them because they, they would have had plenty of viola players. So I didn't even do that. I just did composition first subject in performance not even graduate so i <laughs> i was not going to come out of it with with anything that would have led me to sort of um, uh, you know have a kind of any serious degree it was a licentiate i think which is for performers but so composition doesn't strike you as normally performers but but that's what i did for four years at trinity I, and they were brilliant it was the best place for me absolutely they had a, a music studio with lots of you know, crazy things that I could play around with. And I was there all the time. I'd be there overnight, every night almost. Um, and lots of concerts. And I had a wonderful composing teacher, who uh, Richard Arnell, who was a, a, a marvellous English symphonist, um, but was just very kind of cool. And he would just, he would not judge me in any way other than I'd play things and he'd either like it or he would suggest things. But he was never kind of on me with, and he was just keen for me to try things. I had a great electronic music teacher there, Glenn Morgan, who was amazing. Um, so I learned about synthesizers and tape and all sorts of things. Um, and we were paired up with film students at the central, at the, uh, the national, no, the international film school, which is a, was a one in Soho. Um, and then central school of dance. We were paired up with um, choreography students to do things. So it was, it was a wonderful wonderful and I, I so I, I by the skin of my teeth but I got there and and it all turned out okay and then so you you leave you leave Trinity and you and how long is it before you start kind of writing jingles and thinking about production music and well after Trinity the first thing I did was I worked as a tape op for a, almost a year I think something like nine months maybe um at air studios this is before air lindhurst this is the one in the, the rock and roll studio Oxford street yeah and that was wonder that was great that was wonderful they were very kind to let me in there and uh, i learned an awful lot but i left a bit earlier than they probably would have liked because i realized that a number of things which is i 
I, I wasn't really going to get on very well re engineering for other people because I because <laughs> because their harmony was irritating me too much uh, and their voice leading and all that kind of stuff. I was just like annoyed with it and it's just you know you wanted to go in oh please can i just like fix that for you because they're so ugly the way you're doing that <laughs> and things and that's that's not really useful to have in the studio you have to be much more kind of neutral to these things you can mustn't be judgmental uh, and you know tape up but i had also had wonderful experiences you know i remember you know working with some amazing people uh learned a lot but and i i learned how to i remember um great mixer you know, assisting a great mixer uh, for some mixes once. Uh, John Porter, I think is his name, and he he was showing. You know, he was showing me. He didn't trust the SSL um, uh, automation, so he was so he'd make me he write pencil marks on everything like that, and then we had to move the faders, mm -hmm. you know, from here to here on this bar, you know, and then for the chorus, and then for the the bridge and stuff like this. You know, this is all pop stuff, but. Um, and he was moving things half dBs. And I, so I'd watch him through the day and sort of take something that was sort of okay, but not really blended. And then watching him just magnificently sort of get it right. And then it start to sound like a record and it all really worked together. Just tweaking very small, these kind of little, little steps he would make. And I'd actually see him doing it and he'd talk about it. And so I learned an awful lot there. Um, so I did that for a bit. And Gavin and I, Gavin Greenaway and I, were doing a lot of um, installation art music for our friend Michael Petrie, who's Jermaine's Petrie, Jermaine Petrie's brother, uh, Jermaine Franco's brother. That's right. right. That's how I met Jermaine Franco. So, and we were in a performance art group with Gavin and I were in a performance art group with Michael, and we were doing installation art, and and we realised it was you know trying to raise money to from the Arts Council. And, you know, from the GLC and things to try and do these things were was very hard at the time. And um, it just struck me that, you know, that was taking so much time. And, and Gavin said, well, why don't you just do some jingles? You know, my his father was working with Airedale. He'd been a famous jingle writer and, and Gavin was doing some stuff. And so I, I kind of went to see Maggie Rodford and, and, uh, and they gave me a sort of an audition where I had to write some things. Okay. in their little studio and uh and i passed the audition and i kind of went to the back of the queue of about 15 people <laughs> and and you know and i really only did it just to sort of pay the bills and 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 buy more equipment that i could use for the installation pieces and for the more art pieces um and it and that is exactly what gavin and i did we we, we sort of we made money to to be able to continue doing this stuff but then it eventually it became too sort of su <laughs> too successful at it you know in the sense that i got a lot of work and i suddenly realized the potential of you know working in that side of the industry because it's true you come out of what well, you know come out of, with a licentiate in composition <laughs> i mean what the fuck are you going to do with that you either can write or you can't and at that point still i mean i was just I need a lot of practice, you know. I, I'm I'm iterative, so I don't get any good at anything until I do it over and over again. And, and do you, well, I think many people are like that. Also, writing jingles is such a such a condensed form, and you have to come up with something that's true very quickly and says something really immediately. But that's helpful to you now. That sort of well, skip. when we say jingles, it wasn't jingles. It wasn't song things. It was it was all. I, I never wrote anything with, with with words. You know, it was always advertising music. They were just called, yeah. you know, in London we called them jingle companies because 
because it was all the music there. There were writers there who did that, like Roger Greenway, Gavin's father, you know, had written, I'd like to teach, I'd like to buy the world a Coke for Coke, you know. Mm. So there's plenty of people who did that. But even at that time, it was not something that people were doing much and certainly not something I was doing. I was kind of doing the, um, you know, everything from, you know, can you make it sound like, you know, well, I mean, one of the things was, can you make it sound like Hans Zimmer, who used to be there as well? Yeah. Um, can you make, you know, go and help um, Patrick Doyle with a, a, a BBC radio thing with, you know. So I started to work for other people there as well. I was sort of assisting, you know, programming because I had loads of gear. Nobody else really was getting so was so weird about gear. I had lots and lots of, I spent all my money on, you know, samplers and um, every conceivable kind of sort of, machine I possibly could and um and I was so I, I became useful for that and then also I would do you know just sort of lots of music for advertising campaigns for you know brand flakes you know and and so they had a, you know this animated floating you know kind of flakes and things like that so I got my grandfather's saw and I played my I, I played saw on it <laughs> you know and wrote a little tune and or Australia the Australian tourist commission i remember doing you know doing a, a big one for that which was which is one of those advertising pieces of music that sounds really more like me than i realized at the time it's kind of grand and you know and very serious but still got a didgeridoo in it you couldn't not have a didgeridoo at that time um and you know and these kind of very cinematic pictures and so i was probably getting more work on the cinematic side of you know adverts and things than than anything but still you the great thing is you do have to you get very instant um sort of impressions of how complicated you know language and music are how you how these people want something to fit their their not only fit the picture but also fit their campaign fit the idea of what they're trying to sell so you know that's famously we always used to say you know can you make it sound like an avocado and that was the the trick but i'd certainly got more can you make it sound more chocolatey sometimes um and that's it's like well, what, what sounds more what you know what musically is more chocolatey than other music what you know how or if they like it but it's still not chocolatey enough like what do you do to it to make it more chocolatey so <laughs> it's kind of you you get i think i hear this a lot from friends who do a lot of jingles you do get quite often really really banal sounding suggestions to things but you have to tackle them with total sincerity. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart, really. You know, you've got to... Absolutely. Really... It, it goes back to me being seven and, and finding that language was was made me feel stupid, but that music made me feel I understood the world. And that's exactly what I still do today, which is I try and sort of help translate what music can say in this kind of five-dimensional way. You know, what we can do with music in picture sometimes is add these extra dimensions if it's resonating with what the story is doing or what the idea of it is you know and in those days it was can it can it resonate with the the imagery of chocolate and and the desire of chocolate mm -hmm. <laughs> um does it have the right chords i mean and it's there's some basic stuff yeah and but for me all words are inane they feel inane compared with what music can say so it's 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 frustrating yes um and and yeah the more the more eloquent the language that you can get from smarter people it can inspire you more 
But really, you have to try and sort of face it on, which is we're all sitting around talking about music and it's impossible. So, you know, just so it's again, you have to just try things and see what people say, because their response to. So you say one they say one word, you play something, their response sort of gives you a kind of a, a, a vector between what you did, what they first said, and then their response, <laughs> you know. It's sort of simple. Sometimes it's just faster, slower, higher, lower. But even they don't know to say that. But that might be the solution to more chocolatey. It might need to be slower, or it might need to be in a lower key, or it might need to be orchestrated differently, or completely different chords. You know, are minor keys too sad for chocolate? You know, it's like, um, you know, it's it's about the tension and release of music and the story it can tell in either ten seconds, thirty seconds, or you know, ninety minutes. Um, where you start, what you start with and where you end, context. There's there's so many kind of reasons why music works to images and everybody really needs help to, you know, try and make it. I mean, obviously people try things themselves and they can say, look, this is what I want and they have the temp. That's one of the big problems for film composers is there's the temp, this works. Can if you ask them to explain why they can say lots of words and it's often means nothing because it it works because of <laughs> it's music and it works and then it works also because it's music that worked with the image and it that the problem is sometimes then can anything else ever work that 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 actually serves a a greater good for the movie and so you may be able to get them off of that temp music because you can show that something that's slightly different which is now thematic and is is like connected to the themes of the movie connected to the arcs of characters they'll see that but sometimes they, you can't you know i mean it's, sometimes it's very hard to you know they just say there's something about this piece i like and it in this place and it and it, it works and they can't explain why and you can't argue people out of their feelings i mean that's the hard thing <laughs> A directors falling in love with temps i think is probably the number one complaint I hear from movie composers is just it's so difficult yeah. to negotiate yeah. that dance. Yeah. And you probably notice that you're playing things sometimes that are like either familiar or <laughs> or um or you played a year ago on another film <laughs> and is now on this film. And you wait, wait, this is a different composer. It's like this is this you know, and you that's the problem is that you know, it's a it's a snake that's eating itself often. So the, sometimes the the problem with temps is the world gets smaller musically because what is, you know, I've, uh, we had a very weird experience a few years ago where we went, you know, we did the, the, the Jason Bourne film and that had been temped with things that were from other films that had been temped with things from other films that had been temped with the original Bourne scores. And you could sort of hear the development, which wasn't much. <laughs> So this is you're doing like number four, are you? And you're yeah, thinking, that was nah. number four, and and the temp was kind of liked by the director Paul Greengrass. There was a lot of it was liked, uh, and I'm listening to it. I'm going, wait a minute, that sounds kind of like that cue from Bourne. And I we'd look at it, and it was like, oh no, it was by another composer from another film. And then you go back, and then you realise, oh, that was temp with Bourne, or even two generations with Bourne. You know, and and it's so it's the right kind of thing because it has that vibe to it, but it's not even the original. It's some 
something else that somebody else had to deal with when it was temped in. And I've had a lot of composers come up to me and goes, you fucker. I've had to like, how many times have I had to sort of deal with the born identity being temped in my movies, you know, and it's a fuck to get, you know, what can you do? It's so it's, it is what it is, you know, and so directors really like it. Now, my argument sometimes with them is you're projecting. It's like you, you listening to the born identity in your movie and you're thinking this is good. They think this is working because maybe for musical reasons, but also because it was successful. So the problem is if you bring in famous music or successful music from another successful film, a lot of people sit there and go, oh, this is making my movie successful. And it's not, it's just projection. Uh, and something completely different would work better if not, you know, um, if not as well. Yes. And just uh, with a slightly career uh, hat on, yes. Sorry, you, you go from writing your, your jingles, and then when do you make the decision to move to LA? And was that something, like, could you have, could you have done what you have done if you hadn't moved to LA? Do you think that? <laughs> I don't think so, no. I mean... I remember Harry and I kind of pinching ourselves when we realized we were doing a Nick Park movie, Chicken Run. Um, And I I remember thinking when I was in England, you know, I loved his films. And I I also liked the scores. You know, I I thought thought they always had good scores. And I thought, oh, I'd never get to do a Nick Park movie. It's a shame, but they're so wonderful. And then, you know, like five years later, you know, Harry and I are sort of on chicken run thinking, how do we get, how do, do we have to come to LA to, to work on, on a British film, you know? <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, it was, it was completely about hands and it was completely about, there's just so less, so much less opportunity at the time for, you know, for TV and film in, in England. There was plenty of TV and film, obviously, and there was, very good composers who were doing it all, you know. So it would have meant trying to get in to that scene. And I guess, you know, I was starting to get a few little TV. I had a, a bit of TV stuff that I was doing. But along came Hands. I was helping Hands on something because I was very technical and and, and Maggie Rodfoot sort of put me up to help Hands on something. And, he, you know, he liked me and just sort of invited me over to America. Um because he was getting so much work, he needed lots of hands on deck, as it were. You know, that's the joke. Uh, I, it took me a little while between hands saying, yeah, you should come to, you know, L.A. and help. And I was helping him on a few other things, like, you know, I was helping him on a little bit of, you know, recording sessions of Lion King and things. So it was very interesting, and I, I really wanted to do it, but I didn't feel ready. So, and we were doing the opera, so by the time we'd finished all of that, it was maybe nine months and I went out to LA and, um, and I thought, Oh God, I've left it too long. <laughs> um, but then he was very kind. He, he, you know, he sort of brought me in and, um, I didn't exactly do, you know, big films, uh, to begin with, I helped on other things. So I was helping on, um, on the Prince of Egypt on songs. Uh, I was doing some jingles for his company. He had, he had an advertising music company as well. Um, and other things, but then one day he invited me to a meeting with a director he was going to do two films with, um, and this was the first one, and it was called Endurance, and it was about an Ethiopian runner. Very unusual film. It wasn't a documentary. It was like a drama made of a about a man's life. Uh, Haile Gebre Selassie, one of the greatest sort of 10,000-meter yeah. runners, um, and he was playing himself in it, and his nephew was playing him as a kid, 
Uh, and it turned out that it was Terence Malick had been producing it and wanted to do this with Hans, and Hans was in the middle of three things. So he brought me in. Terence Malick was just absolutely delightful and wonderful. And the idea was we met on a Friday with Hans, me, and Terry. And 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 uh, Hans said, you know what, Terry, we'll, John and I will go away and we'll write some stuff over the weekend and we'll meet again on Monday and we'll play some things. So... Um, so Hans said, OK, let's go, you know, I'll write some stuff, you write some stuff, we'll meet again on Monday. So on Monday morning, I spent the whole weekend, like, you know, trying to write some things. And on Monday morning, he came to me and he goes, please tell me you've written something. <laughs> because he'd spent the whole weekend on some other film and it'd been stuffed, you know. Um, and I had some things and so, and Terry really liked them. And Hans, you know, um, was very supportive and so I started to do that film um that went on hiatus for a little while and then Hans gave uh gave me a knock on the door and said um John Woo just called and wanted me to do this film and I can't do it but you know I've said I know a man who can so that was Face Off and that was really my first film with and and Hans basically produced it which meant that he kind of gave them a guarantee and said you know this kid won't fuck it up Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, and I'll make sure of that. And if necessary, I'll write tunes and whatever it takes, you know. Um, and so I wrote for a couple of weeks. They gave me some footage I wrote for a couple of weeks and then played it to them. And I remember the, the uh, Chris Wagner, who was the editor sort of quietly said to Hans, so these are all your tunes, yes? And Hans goes, no, I didn't write any of them. I'd, I'd managed to write tunes that were kind of, you know, Hansian. Um, and uh, and so they liked it. So I, I got the gig and I held on to it. But then I only had six weeks to do it. So That thing of collaborating with people, do you find that takes a bit of pressure off or do you find it an irritation having to step into someone else's shoes? I guess if it's Hans and your friends, it might be a fun thing to do, but... Are you, restrict, are you feeling restricted that you're not able to write exactly what you want to write? You well, just... I, Gavin and I had always written together. That was the crazy thing. We'd written apart at, at college, but we'd written together. Even even Gavin and Emlyn and I had written together. We we used to write pieces at college where we <laughs> where we would sort of uh, collaborate, including one piece which was we set out a, a structure, a uh, number of bars, and for three instruments, and each of us wrote the instruments but without telling the other what we were going to do um and they, they we, we had it performed at college and um and uh, the and it was it was judged as if it was a sort of a modern composition it was really interesting 
because they couldn't figure out how we collaborated, but they didn't think we'd collaborated only linearly, you know, right. in a linear fashion. <laughs> but that was the thing. Um, so I, I was quite au fait with it. I, I enjoyed it. Gavin was such an easy collaborator as well. We always just had fun doing it. So I kind of walked into a situation where Hans lo loved that about me, probably. I wasn't looking to kind of just you know, be off on my own at that time. I really enjoyed it. And so whether I was writing something on my own or he was writing things or, or whether I was doing arrangements, you know, Gavin and I would always be sort of swapping things. That's what we actually can't even tell who wrote what in the operas and right. the pieces we've written because we sort of, it's a, it it um, so quickly changes as you, as you work together. Um, you know, an idea can pop out of anywhere and it just, immediately gets influenced by the other person and back and forth and back and forth so i, I like that about it and um i never had a problem with it and uh you know but obviously I, the other thing was that I won't, i'm not stupid so you know you get a film they come in they want you know it's john woo they they want hands you know what am i going to do say no 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 you you really i need to write I, I need to write in my own style and my own style will sound much more like, um, you know, um, Kachachurian, you know, it's like, um, no, we don't fucking want Kachachurian. We want hands, please. So I would have immediately lost the gig if I, if I'd not sort of stayed in the, in the spirit of things. And, and obviously hands was advising. He, he never really wrote anything. I remember showing him showing me a really kind of simple, basic way of doing a big build. And I was thinking, yes. Okay. And it's, and, you know, but that was about the only time he really kind of got his hands on things. Um, other than that, it was just advice and a lot of very good advice and, you know, and also helping me understand the film and understand the, you know, the drama of it, you know, the, literally the storytelling rather than just sort of, you know, and, and then you understand why you're doing cues a lot more. So that was what I got in that first film. And from there onwards, yes, I was collaborating with Harry, but, Again, we were not in a situation where Jeffrey Katzenberg was going to give us ants on our own. Hans couldn't do it. Yeah. So why not? And I enjoyed working with Harry very much. I mean, he's, it, you know, we were also sort of being, I think Hans would come in and he would say, you should come and listen to something that Harry's doing. And so I'd go in there with Hans and I'd listen and, and I'd realized, fuck, this is really good. Really good. So then I think what Hans was saying is kind of, Kind of get the level up, get your level up. <laughs> You're going to have to get better than that. He would listen to something I'd done and then say, you need to go and listen to something Harry's doing. You know, and so it would, it would pit us against each other a little bit, but just only from the point of view of, you know, making sure that we were, we were up to standard for, for Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was expecting as good a score as Hans could do, you know, in theory, that's, that was the guarantee that Hans was giving him. Don't worry. These kids will do it. They're great. You know? <laughs> yeah. And do you, and, and is, I guess that's around the first time you would have handed over a massive score to a big group of musicians, is it? Or, or that, I guess Chicken Run around that time. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, Face Off, um, I, yes, we only had strings on that. I only got strings. Everything else was, I wasn't, they, they ran out of money because they'd already done another score. So we were, we were a, a sort of a, a second, the second score. Um, as the strings and it was such a lot of music it was 129 minutes of music um and in six weeks i think um and gavin came on and helped me and but hands would go and produce the sessions 
and I didn't even get to go until the last, until all the sessions, until everything was written. I remember finishing, and this says something about kind of, this was done in LA, and this was my real introduction to sort of how things can work with film, which is that I finished the last cue at 4.30 in the morning, and we played it that day in the afternoon, yeah. you know. So they got it orchestrated, and they got it copied, and then the musicians just saw it for the first time and knocked it out. You know, that's the reality that, Hollywood and London can do. You can't really do that in other places. It's, it's. I mean, other places are catching up, but then in 1997, you know, for me that was quite a, a revelation. You know, the classical world does not work like that. Um, and but that's what money can do. You know, and that's the, the cost of these things are are expensive. You're getting the finest players in the world. You're getting incredible teams of orchestrators and and uh, copyists. You know, who are turning this stuff around in, in no time at all. Um, so I never got to really do that with m musicians, but I, I did go to the last session. I, you know, the last two, the last day of s the sessions when the last cue was written, and the musicians were wonderful. They sort of clapped me as I arrived because they'd been working without me all this time, and so they were very sweet. <laughs> but they, you know, they know to where the bread is buttered. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they hadn't hated it, and and they were just relieved. And I turned up, and I was this guy, and I. You know, so they were like, just said, thank you for not writing too much shit. Uh, I, trust me, I think we, I've participated in enough non-committal rounds of applause. I, <laughs> I, I think, I think you would, I think you would know the difference. I really do. <laughs> well, in LA, they've got better actors. Let's put it. <laughs> I mean, it's very thinly Maybe. veiled over here. That's true, for sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> I mean, we try, and the, we painted on, but so that. That feeling of writing all this music and then handing it over, squiggles on a page to a, a huge bunch of people. It's kind of, you've got to let go of it to a degree. And, and do you still enjoy jumping off that cliff? Or? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what you're heading to. In each project, you start and you've, you, you've enjoyed the chase up until that point, getting the gig. Then you enjoy kind of talking about it and really trying to get your head around it. And then you realise that you've got no ideas and you've got a shit ton of music to write and they're expecting you and then the pressure lands on you and you get you feel terrible and then I start to have to go back I and I'm you know I'm embarrassed to say it but occasionally I go back and I listen to films that I've done just to check just to remind myself that oh, if I've done this before then I should know what I'm doing um in fact interviews like this are actually kind of tricky I've done, this might be my last one for a while because i'm starting out writing a bunch of stuff because right. i do all these interviews and and i talk about it and it always sounds so easy to me it's like oh yeah it's just do this and that and then i i'll leave the interview and i'll go try and work and it would be like <laughs> well i just explained to everybody how easy this is and how simple it is and i know this and yet what i'm doing is shit and it's and it's terrible i don't know what so i've kind of I have to go through stages when I don't talk about it ever. How, how do you writing, get yourself you know? out of the bit where you you think you can't write anything? And how, what do you just go for a walk, or what do you do? I mean, no, God, no. That doesn't mean no good whatsoever. <laughs> um, I um, well, there's there's three stages of of this, which is avoidance. So you just avoid it, um, or I fiddle around with other things. So I was like, oh. Before I really head into trying to write this tune, which I can't write clearly, I will just try and get all the sounds sorted out, you see. So you kind of like 
spend endless amounts of time on this flute or this flute sample, you know, in this, you know, this string, would this be useful? And, and try and use sounds to kind of G me up into like focusing on it. And, uh, and then you just have to sort of sit there with the picture and, and start sometimes. Um, it depends how much time you've got as well. Um, and as I say, I, I'll sometimes listen to my own music just quickly to remind me that I can do it, but mainly other people's music as well. I'll, I'll sort of make a playlist of things. Yeah, it's useful. Never film music, I might add. Never film music. Always yeah. other things that nobody would ever associate with the scores in the end. But you know, just for grooves or vibes or you know something, just some weird wonky sound that I like that you know might might, might get me going in some way. Because all it takes is just a little thing, and then you're off. Um, you know, it doesn't take an awful lot, but it does take sitting and focusing on it. So the hardest part is the f- is the stress of worrying that you won't be able to do it. So the various things, but no, taking a walk would never help me. Um, I go and watch TV a lot, which does no good. In fact, it's actually the right. worst thing possible, um, but that's just to avoid it. Um, and then eventually I run out of time and then that's what really focuses me. I mean, I'm very good with di- deadlines because the deadline, whilst it brings stress, it also brings, I suppose it brings the focus. I mean, it's, there's a painful time there's a very painful moments, a lot of painful moments when you kind of have nothing and, or you have the wrong thing or you have things you're, you're not convinced of even. And, uh, and just seeing the kind of the giant mountain of notes you have to try and do uh, and whether or not this is really worthy of the conversation you had at the beginning with the director, <laughs> you know, yes. will you, will you disappoint them? Um, you know, when they, because you, you know, I've got to the point now when I'm probably quite good at giving meetings um, and talking about it. And the reality is much harder, I think, still to this day. I find it hard. And you've got to the stage also where Doug Lyman loads of times and Paul Greengrass a lot. That must make it a bit easier that you can <laughs> speak his language, or at least that you know that he trusts you. And no, it's funny. It it, it isn't. I mean, you know them more. They underst- you understand their methodologies more, but no, I mean, you know, a lot of good, really good film directors are, are harder and harder to work with because they get better and they get more exacting and they get more requirements in their head and they've heard other things and, you know, they want more. I mean, Danny Elfman is the same with uh, Tim Burton. He, you know, he's done all these films with him, finds it increasingly, you know, not harder, but as as much of a challenge if not more obviously it's a good challenge because you're you're trying to sort of everybody's trying to keep things fresh you know i mean as i'm sure there's some directors that you know you could turn up with and they can say you know come on just just churn out the old stuff that you do do that that'll be great that'll be fine but i really don't know anybody like that they generally are much more interested in new different all the time you know and even if it's not they just want the appearance of that um and also every film's different you really don't know whether or not you know the music you can write will work for the film uh sometimes so and they don't know and then they've got different temps and you know it's just as complicated i I wish it got easier it doesn't it seems to be getting harder for me at least (laughs) and just talk a little bit about how you you end up working with john williams how does that work in short i mean that must be quite a nice phone call to receive Yes, it it was, and 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 it was it was very specific. So my agent calls and says, you know, there's this Star Wars film, but 
um, they want but, you know, so I said, oh, what's the but? And they said, you know, they do want to put it up front, you know, and this is at a point when you're only on, when you're on a list, you're not, you're not got it, you know, you're on a list. Would you be interested? Because we, we want to take you off the list if you're not interested under these circumstances. I said, well, what are the circumstances? Then? It's like, well, they want John Williams to write the tune. So I kind of went, fuck yeah. <laughs> That's the best actual circumstances under which I'd want to do this. You know, I wouldn't want to do it without him because it would be too stressful, really. And also, it's Yoda. I mean, it's like getting to work with Yoda. So for so many reasons, it was the best call, you know. Um, and he was incredibly lovely and gracious and then calls me up after, I, you know, we sort of I, and meet the directors. They hire me. And then he called me up and goes, John, you know, I, you can write your own tunes. You don't need me to write a tune. I just want, I wanted to call you because it just seems like madness that I would write this tune. You know, you can do it yourself. And I said, and I said, well, that's, that's incredibly kind of you. But um, as my responsibility is to try and make the film as good as I can and the score as good as I can, it would be the stupidest thing on earth to say that I could write this myself. <laughs> so, if you're in, uh, you know, that's the best thing for the film. And I would love that to happen. You know, if you don't want to do it, I'll understand. But, you know, I'd much rather you, you were in. And so he, you know, a bit of time passed. He was on other things. And, and then and I wrote a bunch of things in preparation sort of for all the other stuff I had to do. But I kind of, I, I got into quite a funk about, you know, sort of my uh, lack of talent based on the sort of comparison with his having I had all these short scores from the original movies and they were just extraordinary. So, I, but I wrote a few things and, and then he came along and wrote something. Um, we had some meetings. It's just wonderful and delightful. We even had a spotting session. He was very generous, very kind. And he wrote some two things and, and he had a, an orchestra in LA record them. We couldn't use those recordings because there was an, in London in the end and so it was a non-union film so we, even though it was a union orchestra they were really doing his demos for him right. um, so once he'd done them and I breathed a huge sigh of relief because it's like then I knew where I was and then all the stuff I'd done as well I knew how to fit it and 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 I so I, I we programmed all of his cues and all his music that he'd written into my gear so that I could then work with it and do arrangements and change things because of course the film changed a lot um some bits of his are exactly as he wrote them and and but i took a lot of that material and developed it in different ways and did different arrangements and and absorbed it and into other things and you know it was it was it was wonderful to do really with with once he'd put that sort of stuff down for me it was it was like okay i know, I know we're in the world now you know I know, I know what the world's, you know, the edges of the world are, you know, I know how to play in it. It's, I know the language that we're going to use. Um, so it was the, it was the best thing, you know, I can imagine it was, and it was just fascinating and delightful and, and uh, I'll, you know, never forget it. And, and you managed somehow, I guess, to, you're totally different ways of working, right? Because you're very, you'll be able to demo things very elaborately. And I guess even if he could do that, it's probably not the way he likes to work. No, yeah, that's true. The, the, he, yeah, there's teams of people in LA who who can do it for him. He obviously doesn't have any interest in that 
really that side of it. I mean, he seems very kind of open to, you know, he, he described, you know, the fact that he didn't know how to do that, sort of all those wonderful sounds you use, John, all those wonderful, crazy things, you know, you, you find. And he was he was delightful about that. But, you know, he was he was he was definitely more comfortable with getting it on paper and then getting it in front of musicians. And then he for one session, he just did all these different pieces. And then we took all that material and we couldn't even get the recordings out of that. We, we couldn't literally get them out of the door. They were just there to be heard by the directors and producers there on that day. From there onwards, I took all of that material and reprogrammed it. And then those recordings could be used because <laughs> we didn't want something, you know, that had been done union, you know, to end up accidentally somewhere, you know, and that can happen. So everything outside of, that from that moment onwards, you know, I took it all into my gear and it was all, orchest you know, all the orchestrations were just remade in, in, in my gear. And that was wonderful because I really got to sort of see the inside of it as well, you know, and see exactly how we were doing stuff, you know, and, and how it transferred into my world. Uh, you know, we also had, you know, all of the kind of full scores and the, everything from the other movies. So when we wanted to do other bits of, you know, the themes and stuff, I could really sort of study how he'd done it. Obviously, I was doing other arrangements of it, but when we really needed to make it sound the same, we, you know, we had all of the the details to do it. But yes, I mean, it's a very different world I was in. Um, and it's not a better world, it's just a different world, that's all. It's a world where we have to, for the directors, you have to make, we do all the work in this room rather than, you know, he turned up in a studio, he had 90 musicians, everyone turns up, watches it it's wonderful of course it works but you know that doesn't always happen i mean it always happens with him but it doesn't ha always happen with people you know so everybody's got used to this world where they come in and we play things and they can change it and we can do a lot of changes and a lot of try things out and they hear pretty much everything that they're going to hear as close as we can get it before um, you know before they spend the money on the orchestra yeah that's why people don't even turn up for the recording sessions sometimes <laughs> yeah of course and and actually he's so he generally would still be conducting to picture right oh totally yeah. yeah he conducted some of it to picture and some of it just freehand because you know it was just sort of tunes and things so he was yeah. just trying it was like you know almost like a sweet thing the, the only time i've ever got to do that was, was was with james horner and they put the 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 projection screen down the back end of abbey road one and they would there were cues that were 12 minutes long on this and i mean we would play for 12 minutes and he would just potter into the box and come back 45 minutes later it was i mean i, I the reason people don't do it is because it's phenomenally expensive i, I yeah you know, got 60 yeah, the, people sitting there yeah and, yeah no absolutely i mean he was yeah james horner really liked to conduct to picture and like to try and get it right so he would he would, he would do it over and over again to picture. And actually, Gavin and I were lucky enough to, uh, when we were at college, I think the last year we were at college, we got a call uh, from my composition teacher saying, go down to Abbey Road now, they'll let you in the back, you can watch a scoring session. And it was James Horner doing um, An American Tale. And oh, I'll yeah. never forget that, yeah. And that was the funny thing was that when I was working on Solo, I was working with Kathy Kennedy, and Kathy Kennedy had been there that day. Yes, she'd been in this in at Abbey Road while James was recording it. She was one of the producers. What I also what I found about that was, I mean, it's it's slow and it's a totally different universe you're in. But you do 
he, I would, he would find that something completely unexpected would happen. Oh, totally. and, it, and it would give him a bit more impetus and like, well, maybe we can try and hit that again slightly differently. And I, it, I, it was really fascinating to watch. I don't think I will probably ever do it again, actually, as a... As a I know, and it is a shame. But also in those days, the picture was locked. You're right. As in you were conducting and trying to hit things, but the picture wasn't going to shift the next day and then day after that and the day after that, you know. So the point of doing it the way we do it now is we try and get as late to as later version as the picture we can. We try and do it with enough kind of, I don't know, enough sponginess to it all that when they're on the dub, which is maybe the pictures, the edit's finished, maybe not, sometimes not. I mean, it's crazy now. It's, it's you know, when you, before you had Avid and before you had, you know, um, linear editing, things were very different. You know, you could, you, you had a fixed picture. You knew what it was going to be. Famously, E.T. was recut. The end of E.T. was recut to John Williams and music because he could never seem to hit. He, he said he, they had great difficulty hitting it to the picture they had. Wow. And Spielberg said, you know, do you think you'll be able to do that? And he said, well, I don't know because I, I'm having to rush this bit and rush that and it should be more glorious here. And he, he said, you record it how you want it and I'll cut the picture to it. And that's how E.T. is. But generally, you, they didn't do that and they still wouldn't do that today. Um, you have to try and get it right. So we click everything out because we're also trying to put it together in a way that is easy, easier to edit. So we, the brass not being at the same time, percussion, all these elements. So it's like all these kind of stripes of things, as we, as we call it. But it all has to fit together. And the only way to do it is to have you know everybody do it to a click. But nowadays, I mean, I really have sort of gone a lot more with trying to make the click more musical and not fixed so much. So the click's moving around, and that makes it harder for the musicians, really. Yeah. But uh, we do a lot of editing as well. And there's techniques and sort of methodologies you can make to, you know, to try and make sure that it's all going to fit together at the end. Like, for instance, the brass always needs to play the, after the strings and the winds have recorded. I've never, I've never been able to do it the other way around. Uh, you couldn't start with the brass and then hope that it was in tune to the click of the strings and the winds, even if the brass were tuned to the synth strings. See, we always have things that in the, on the session that, you know, is the demo. So we can always push up the strings and listen to it. Um, but I've tried it many years, many times, you know, the brass for some, until we actually record the real strings and edit those, then we put the brass on and the brass are now hearing the real strings and somehow the tuning always works, <laughs> but it never works with the synth strings. So we always have to do the brass afterwards. But even then it's difficult stemming, I think, uh, you know. Oh, it's painful. Yeah, it's painful. It's and and trying to make sure it's going to work and what you need to do. And yeah, it's very unmusical at times. I mean, sometimes I, you know, I try and get everybody to play together. I mean, we've done it. Sometimes we play it together and then you stem it out, but people sit around and that's boring for them. But I've, I've got, I've had some cues on films where, where they're mixtures. So some sections work much better off click with everybody in the room and other sections were stemmed and, you know, and, I don't think anyone would notice necessarily the sound, but you do get sometimes <laughs> it is, it is interesting. Tuning is better when everyone's in the room, you know, oh, sure. it's, yeah. it's, there's no other way around it, but that's, what's amazing about London, LA, you know, these places, you know, everyone has kind of really got very good at being able to do it. This other very unmusical way. Yes. Um, John, I just, I'm conscious of the time and you've been very generous with your time. I just wanted to say you occasionally you do take breaks out and, 
write some concert music and is that really important to you or do you, do you feel like you need to refresh yourself by doing that or what well, does it give you the first break was really when i started to do that was really i was just absolutely knackered i was i'd, I'd been on so many movies and in a row and you know and sometimes you I, it just felt like i'd i'd not had a break a real break for years and and it's that feeling of kind of owing everybody homework all the time, being late on everything, being behind, being stressed. And I just had to do it, you know. Um, and so I kind of, the first time I just did that, and it was great. For a year, I just did like woodwork and, and sat around and drank cocktails. Um, but then I got bored. And so I, I realized I should try and write some things. Uh, and I didn't want to jump back into film. So I, I started to write uh, an oratorio that I was meant to write, um, which was about the first world war and this was sort of and I, I i was late for the i was trying to do it for the 2014 which was the um 100th anniversary of the first world war beginning um but I, I didn't quite make it by then but i was around about that time so i i wrote that and i wrote something else uh, for gospel choir and orchestra and and it, it just it was interesting and I found that after I did these kind of things, my writing got better <laughs> for for scores as well. Um, so I thought it's probably something I should really keep trying to do. And so every now and again, I do try and do it. And um, you know, we we've been doing this. We've been doing a redo of the opera that we wrote, Gavin and I, and Michael Petrie wrote uh, twenty five years ago. Um, and we've just finished recording that. And and I'm sort of still mixing that at the moment but there's some other pieces i've written um and i'm going to be working on a few other things and, and it, it's all good like in for some reason or other i, I got in contact with somebody who was a solo viola player who was doing a, <laughs> a solo viola album during the pandemic um and obviously i couldn't help myself i couldn't use one viola so i got her to track nine viola parts mm -hmm. <laughs> um and and my piece was very different so i think she enjoyed it because i called my you know it was it was a sort of everybody was doing pieces at the meditation of you know of being home in the pandemic and and being alone and things and and she said you know i'm you're trying to in, i want to inspire you from i'm trying to inspire all these composers to write pieces of solo viola based you know on the on what's happening right now in the pandemic and everybody being uh, you know alone and so um i couldn't the first thing i thought of was well if you're home and you're not at work and you know it's like well it's probably time to clean up properly so i called it a perfect time for spring cleaning and it's it's actually a, it's not very meditative it's kind of a funny piece that is like wacky and fast and she enjoyed it but you know and and nine violas um i will one day do it live with nine violas i think that would be great but uh i mean every now and again you kind of hear of things and i try things and i i, I keep writing when I'm not on things and I'm trying to be much more careful about the films I do do so that I have time to do that. And I think it will improve my writing. I hope, um, you know, the storytelling is, is also important. I realized, you know, for the oratorio, which was this war coming up about the first world war and how it really got started. Um, I realized I got stuck on that until I realized, wait a minute, I've been in Hollywood all these years. I should, I should, I should kind of go with the fact that I, I'm, I'm more interested in story now than I ever was. And once, once I did that, it really helped. I mean, it kind of cracked the back of it when I realized that I couldn't be just sort of too obscure and, and too airy-fairy about composition. I had to be much more 
um, deliberate in where I was going and why and what the arc of everything was. And that helped me just compositionally and, and also helped me sort of feel more confident writing. And you mentioned that like, you've been in LA for now 25 years. Yeah. Um, and although the world has changed a lot and the way that you can work has changed a lot, the fundamentals of writing good music to good pictures are pretty much the same. Just as a, as a last question, really, what, what what advice would you give to someone who sees that as as a career? Or, and you know, how how would you how would you advise a young film composer now? Well, it is. I think it's much harder now. There's so many people can do it and want to do it, and and technology has changed everything. So you know, when I started out, as it were. You know, to be able to work the same way that hands, I needed to spend every penny I could on gear, and it was very expensive at that time. So, you know, just getting an orchestra to play out of synths was, you know, an unheard of thing at the time. Nobody really had those kind of libraries; only hands had it. And if you wanted to use his library while you were working with him, you had to buy a lot of gear, um, and that's like, you know, serious money. Now you can do it on a laptop, and there's plenty of libraries, plenty of orchestral libraries, and every other conceivable sound you could imagine. You still have the option to make your own sounds, and you still have the option to record it live and you know play things, obviously. But that that technique of working has made it much more um, universal for people now. Um, but that means that there's a lot of people who want to do it. Um, so the question is, how do you get into it? Well, the same way as I did, which is a lot of luck. <laughs> I think that still applies. Um, I think being ready is always the case because one must assume that you've got to get everybody kind of gets chances i mean everybody i mean you know if you're lucky you'll get a chance and if you're if you've worked at being ready for your chances then that's going to help but the thing i would add today is given that everybody can do it everybody's got the same sounds you really have to think more seriously about are you just sounding like everybody else are you sounding like everything that everyone expects which strikes me as being partly a good idea. And for instance, when I was saying on Face Off, I was deliberately not trying to sound too different from hands. I really knew I had to be that thing. But that was an, during an opportunity. I think if you're outside the industry and you're trying to get in, the industry will welcome you in, more. I think, more easily if you don't sound like everybody else and you sound interesting to them. You may not get in through the front door. You may not get straight to Steven Spielberg or, you know, those kind of films. <laughs> you might have to go in via a different route. But if you sound exactly the same as everybody who's scoring big films, you know, it's like, why? Because everybody else here, everybody here can do it. And they have 10 assistants who can do them. And those assistants have friends who can do it. So it's like thousands of people can do what, the people doing it now can sound like. So why try and sound like Hans or me or James Newton Howard or whatever? There's really no point. What has been interesting is the people who don't sound like that and are much more unusual sounding have been getting into the industry much more recently. And I think that's the key to it is like, don't sound like film music. Don't sound like what we expect. Um, be different. And people, somebody will notice um, if you can do, you know, it's, they Spitfire have had this uh, sort of amazing 
you know, kind of um, competition where they had a piece of something to score and everybody, you know, they had, I don't know, 12, 11,000 entries and 11,000 of them were the same because it was a genre and everybody thought, well, I better do the same thing. And so they did. And one guy did something just crazy and stupid and it, it kind of, and it won because it wasn't really what would have been in there, but it got attention. It got noticed. Everybody else was very angry. It was like, well, I thought the idea was to do this properly. It's like, yeah, but this is not the so. If you're trying to get into the kind of into that world, and you just do it the same way everybody else does it, how on earth are you going to be different? You either have to be luckier, or you have to know more people. You have to be, I don't know. This can you be better? Yes, obviously, being better is good. But I'd say a lot of film music would prove that that doesn't matter that much. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of really kind of very mediocre music works just fine. In fact, a lot of it, most of it, you know, is musically mediocre. It doesn't require it to be, film doesn't require the music to be sort of incredible music that much. There's sometimes when it does, and there's sometimes when we already appreciate it, and sometimes we notice it. But, you know, there's not a lot of that necessary, you know. So, you know, obviously you can be better, but I'd say be different. That would be the main thing I'd always say. Be different. Great. Be what, different. A, what a very good message upon which to end. John, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. That was the wonderful John Powell talking to me about his life in film music and beyond. If you enjoyed that, please do subscribe. I hope to see you again soon. Take care. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.